Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. My name is Adam Thurwell, the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Today on the show we got together with Pete Ramage, former professional footballer for Newcastle United, Queen's Park Rangers, Phoenix Rising and more. Pete is now the under 23 coach at Newcastle United, he's back to where it all began. We're going to be discussing Pete's life as a pro, his time in the United States, youth player development and also Pete's toughest opponent ever. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to get into the show now. Enjoy. <laughs> cool. So and there's loads of people that listen to this in Phoenix as well. So it'd be cool to kick it off by just, just saying a bit about like your time in Phoenix and what you thought about, like not only on the pitch, but off it as well. You mentioned they're living in Phoenix as well. So what's it, what's it like now being back in Newcastle, but your time in Phoenix and the contrast between the two? Because there can't be that much difference between Newcastle and Oh, Phoenix, no, I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I just moved to me right, you know, I mean, we've had, uh, we couldn't train today. Um, we literally woke up this morning, there was about uh, two inches of snow on the fields. Um, it's so funny because so the first thing I noticed when you started talking was the weather behind you. I was like, yeah. Jesus, that looks grim. <laughs> well, it's it's five o'clock at night now and it's absolutely freezing. Yeah, it's getting dark, but it's freezing. That northern uh, wind chill coming off the North Sea, it's, uh, it's quite bitter. And like I said, this morning we woke up and uh, we've got two inches of snow on all the fields and we had to get the snow shovels out and try and clear the pitch or, or the AstroTurf pitch, but... Um, then the first team's pitches were all frozen and whatnot, so they needed the shovels and all sorts. So we ended up not having to draw, not being able to train today. So that's the one uh, difference between Phoenix and here is that uh, we never, well, unless you went up to Flagstaff or somewhere like, or somewhere like that, we never really had the issue of snow or cold weather anyway. I don't know if you remember when you were in Phoenix, remember Cardinals trained in like one of those little domes and I was wondering yeah, yeah. why they don't have more of those in the UK because the weather's so shit most of the year. So. Well, we do. Okay. To be fair, we do. Um, but as we're finding uh, kind of with the, the first teams, I know throughout the Premier League um, are separate from 23s and 18s just because of okay. all the COVID protocols. So normally, yeah, I mean, the first team trained this afternoon so we would have gone, normally like, we would have just gone in in the morning but um, the 23s and down from next week actually we're starting to get tested on a uh, on the same schedule as the first team mm. um, but we're not allowed to use any facility that the first team use so our uh, well our our, our uh, AstroTurf pitch is all outdoors okay. um, quite a few academies uh, are fortunate enough to have indoor facilities um, we're not one of them unfortunately so uh, but we have the one at the first team, but obviously with everything that's going on, we can't use it at the minute. Um, so yeah, we do we do have one. It's brilliant. It's the same actually. It's the same building, same kind of facility that uh, that I had there when I was a player. Um, so nothing's nothing's much changed apart from a, a better a better astroturf surface. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think quite a few speaking to like coaches throughout the country that are having the same issue with with the weather at the minute. Anyway, is that they can't get into the the main indoor facility because that's been used by the first team. Yeah, no one. And then on top of that, you you just mentioned that you've got all the COVID regulations as well, right? So that makes it even trickier. You got a you got a beautiful English English weather, and then you lay a COVID on top of that. Yeah, I know. I mean, that was uh, that was one of the good things about when it first the first outbreak uh, last year, last March, was it um, being out in Phoenix was that it was still you know glorious 80, 90 degrees, so you could get out and about with especially with the kids. Um, you know, you get up in the morning, go for a walk, or and you go to the park in the afternoon, or 
uh, early evening if, if it was too hot you go for an ice cream can't really do that here when it's snow and wind and hail and all sorts <laughs> the kids are literally confined to the the four walls that we're uh, what we're living in but um yeah i mean it's uh, it's been tough it's been a struggle for for not just us but for many clubs over here um with the weather um and obviously with first team taking prior priority over you know the facilities that are available at, at clubs um you know some of the, the top top clubs uh, the elite clubs i suppose you could say are, uh, you know are fortunate to have to have maybe multiple indoor facilities but we're not one of them so we've had to uh, kind of make do with what we've got yeah and so, and so when this came back up the opportunity for you to go back home was it always on the plans like always in the, the cards for you to finish your time in the states and go back to newcastle or was it a bit, bit of a surprise um well, to be honest with you, I, about this time last year, um, the job the job that I'm in now, I'm the assistant, uh, the actual, the lead, the lead role came up um, and the season had finished. I was coming home. Um, I spoke with Bobby and Rick. Uh, I wanted to apply for it. Um, I mean, Newcastle's a club that I've grown up supporting since, you know, the day I, I came onto this planet. Um, so for that opportunity, just to interview more than anything else, they were brilliant. Both Rick and Bobby allowed me to, you know, do go through the interview process. Um, I actually got down to the final two, um, and the lad that beat me is the lad I'm now working alongside, which is uh, quite ironic. But <laughs> it's been great. But Rick always knew that Newcastle, you know, he cut me in half, and I'm black on one side and white on the other. Um, and he always knew that if an opportunity came at Newcastle, that I was, you know, I was going to ask to be able uh, to to apply for it and. When it didn't come, when I didn't get the job, you know, way back in uh, well, January last year, uh, I was fully set on on being in Phoenix for for God knows how long. To be brutally honest with you, um, I was really enjoying it. We had a you know obviously big plans going into the season, which uh, obviously got curtailed. You know, first game into the season, and then everything gets locked down. But you know, I'd start to make like a transition into the youth, working with Chris Brown and. Uh, and Andy Chapman and, uh, and Steve Cook working in the, the youth side of things with Phoenix and trying to help build and be a bridge between you know the youth side of things and the, and the first team. And then ball out of the blue in July, uh, the assistant to Chris um, left and an opportunity came. Uh, and instead of having to apply for the role, they basically offered me there and then. Um, and Newcastle uh, is a club, I guess, like you know, I've just said before, they're close to my heart, but also it's uh, for my family. My wife's from the area, my girls are, you know, they miss the grandparents, the friends, everything. It was an opportunity that if I turned down, I may never get an opportunity to come home. Um, and if it had been any other club, to be brutally honest with you, I was, and I said this to Rick and Bobby, I would have turned it down wherever it was in England, because I wasn't really planning on moving back to any other club other than Newcastle. Um, but the fact that it was Newcastle that came calling, there was there was more than just the football inside of things to factor in. I had a, you know, I've got a young family to to factor into, and um, that's what made the decision a little bit harder because, uh, you know, we'd made we'd made roots in Phoenix. Um, my kids were settled; they were loving school, they were loving life in Arizona, and my wife was too. And she was actually uh, she didn't want to come back at the start with; she wanted me to turn it down, but. I think she realised as well that if we didn't make the move back, then I don't know if this opportunity would have came up again. It's got to be a really hard part of a footballer's life that 
Um, you've played at a few different clubs over your time. You made a big jump to come over to the States, but especially for something that maybe isn't talked about very often is the life for the family of the footballer, because you have to move around. Your kids get settled, your wife gets settled with friends and family and so on. So it's got to be really difficult just to make that adjustment. You get settled in a new place and then you've got to pick up and move again. Yeah. So it's interesting that like, how, how do you deal with that and make sure that it's not just you? You've got to think of your career, but also to make sure that yeah. your family are sorted out as well. Yeah, well, I think if you asked this question to me, Mrs., she would probably say that the night that we met, she would have gone to a different bar. <laughs> Her life would have been a hell of a lot easier and a lot different. But, um, I mean, she's been unbelievable throughout the time that we've been together. She's always supported me in what I wanted to do, which is a very selfless thing to do mm. um, because she's basically sacrificed her her livelihood uh, and what she wanted to be and do um, to support me and be around for me to be able to carry on what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been hard for her, you know, when we were, it was, it was hard when I was playing because you got the deadline day move and particularly I had one in particular, I literally got a phone call saying, right, you're going from Crystal Palace to Barnsley. So she had to, so I got in the car, drove up to Barnsley and that was it. I just got on with playing the next day, but she had to pack up a house move two young kids from London back up to the north. She had to do that all on her own. So um, it's, it's been tough for her. Um, the last 10 years, like I said, she'd probably, uh, she'd probably say if she, if she could go back or rewind that she wouldn't, uh, the night we met, like I said, she'd probably go to a different bar. But then again, we've, you know, we've had the opportunity to live in different places. Um, you know, we've lived in London, we've lived in Barnsley, we've lived uh, all over the country. And, and now obviously we or prior to, to moving back, we lived in Phoenix, which uh, is something that I don't think many people will be able to say, but something that we loved. All, all I can think about right now is the contrast of your lifestyle between Scottsdale and Barnsley. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, yes, that is true. You've got the grim north of Barnsley and Oakwell, or you've got... I've been to Barnsley. Barnsley. No, no disrespect to Barnsley, but Barnsley's an interesting place, especially yeah. compared, even compared to London. <laughs> I even think... The, the, I mean, I love Barnsley. I still speak to quite a few people now, but I, I think even most of the uh, the locals say the best roads uh, from Barnsley is the one that goes out of it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's... I mean, it was it was brilliant. She moved down... To, I mean, it was, it was handy because only a couple of hours down the road, so she could jump in the car and go home if she wanted. But right. being in Phoenix, it's an 11-hour flight and two different stops. It's a, it's a little bit different. So when the decision came... First, when I when I played my last year of playing there, or 18 months of playing there, she... Uh, she stayed here in Newcastle with the kids and uh, and, her, and held the fort um, and allowed me to kind of finish my playing career. But then when you know when Rick called to to come back out to coach uh, or to work alongside him and Blair uh, as a family, um, I wouldn't have done it if she said she didn't weren't going to come. I couldn't have done it again. That eighteen months that I spent uh, here or there as a player. Uh, it was hard because you know all I was seeing I was seeing my kids probably three times a year and. Uh, FaceTime is great and brilliant, but it doesn't replicate, you know, kissing them goodnight uh, yeah. or waking them up in the morning. So uh, she was unbelievable in coming out and the support that she gave me when, when I was out there as well. You know, obviously we travel quite a bit, so she's left with the kids, you know, probably most weekends or every other weekend when we're going to California or we're going up to uh, to Utah or Seattle or Poland. I mean, she's stuck at home and we're going to see all the uh, all the other sites of America. But she was she made a great friends or had a great friends network who we still speak to to this to, uh, to today. We're still in constant contact, and that was brilliant for me to know that she had 
people outside of football that she could go and you know just go and have a glass of wine at night or you know watch the kids play in the pool um, and sit and have barbecues and things like that so uh, like I said she's been um, she's been incredible throughout my career both as a player as a coach to support me and, uh, and kind of man the fort when I'm uh, when I'm out having fun. And I love hearing stories like this when it is someone like yourself that's grown up, you've, you've played, you had a good career in England, you've grown up in Newcastle. And when that opportunity came up for Phoenix, Arizona, what was your first thought? Because I know what mine was. When, <laughs> Where? Someone, said, when, some, when someone said Phoenix to me, Where? When I, first thought, I just thought cactus bush, Grand Canyon, <laughs> like where am I going? So like, how did that even come about? Uh, well, it, it was strange because... Um, it was the summer of 2016 and I, I was literally, I was without a club, I was 33 year old, um, 30, yeah, 33. Uh, it was Mark Bircham, uh, who was the assistant of Frank Yallop. Mm. Uh, I worked with Birch when I was at QPR and, uh, and spoke to him, we still speak to him regularly and basically rang me up out of the blue and was just like, fancy coming out and not about an hour earlier, I just put down the phone to Simon Grayson at Blackpool. I was just about to get in the car and go down for... Uh, for a two-week travel Blackpools and rang my agent and said, I've got an opportunity to go to Blackpool or an opportunity to fly out of Phoenix, Arizona. I said, it's like, what should I do? And he was like, well, firstly, find out where Phoenix, Arizona is because he, <laughs> he didn't have a clue, neither did I. So when I Googled it and seen it, it was obviously like, it was going to be in the middle of the desert and it was a bit of a warmer climate than you know, Blackpool. Uh, I just thought, why not? Uh, you know, I'd had a little four-month stint in India um, which was unbelievable um, but at 33 year old I, I didn't really want to go down to Blackpool and that's no disrespect to them but you know going up to Grimsby on a cold Tuesday night or going up to you know California on a, on a warm summer's yeah. Tuesday night Orange, uh, Orange County or Orange day, County maybe. yeah <laughs> um, so no I, I literally I, I came out for 10 days um, to have a look at the place see what Phoenix was about Frank as soon as I touched down, uh, Birch and Frank picked me up and, um, to be honest with you, they showed me the sights of Old Town. Uh, took me to a, a couple of the night spots and then we watched the game. I watched the game on the Saturday and I was sold. So, yeah, uh, it didn't take much for me to, to realise that that's where I kind of wanted to finish my career. But I didn't want to go over as, you know, the American leagues back home here are certainly seen as more of a retirement. Um, when I went out there, you know, Berkey Bakai was there, Brett Johnson, uh, Mark Detmer, they were, they were just getting involved and, and going to kind of rebrand the club from Arizona United it was, as it was at the time. They, they had plans to make it um, a, a new club. The name hadn't been uh, decided. The stadium hadn't been designed or anything like that. They just had a vision and um, I was sold, uh, to be brutally honest with you. You know, Didier wasn't even a uh, wasn't even a thought at that time either. So, you know, when he comes on board as well, it just kind of reaffirmed my decision was was the right one. And the, the American soccer leagues, as you said, there, especially back back home, it's like um, a certain perception of maybe the level of football or a retirement league. Were you surprised, or, or how did you find it when you came to play in the leagues over here? Were you surprised by the standard, or, or was it improving because you spent quite a few years there? Yeah, I mean, when I first came over, I, I knew nothing about the USL. I, I just thought it was MLS and that was it. I didn't realise yeah, there was, you know, like a, a second tier. Um, yeah. 
But then when you come and you have a look at the teams, you know, you're playing against Galaxy 2, Portland 2, like you, you alluded to, just Orange County. Uh, so you have like the, the, the mix of the, the kind of single identity teams like the Phoenix, Orange County, El Paso, New Mexico. But then you've got, you know, Seattle Sound or Tacoma. You've got, um, you know, you've got the Portlands, you've got the, the Monarchs. There's a great blend of youth and experience. Uh, so you've got different kind of styles. Um, and within that, the players are really good, you know, much better than I expected, um, which heightened my interest even more so because it, it, it reaffirmed that I had to perform week in, week out. I couldn't just come out and, like I said, I wasn't coming out for a retirement. Well, I was coming out to enjoy the last couple of years of my career, sure. but I knew to enjoy that I had to perform because if you weren't performing, you're going to be bottom of the league and nobody likes being down there. Um, especially somebody like myself who's competitive as I am so mm. coming out there and uh, you know seeing in the first couple of weeks uh, the level of the and the quality of the, the teams and and also the fan base of the teams as well um, it was it was real eye-opener that this is this is no joke this is not this isn't this ain't just uh, you know Mickey Mouse League this is something serious and and then obviously when we we went from 2016 to 2000 obviously 17 going into uh Phoenix Rise and uh, you see the stadium that's being built and the fans that are coming to watch week in, week out and, you know, the Banditos and the Red Fury and that South End um, singing the hearts out. It's like being back home, which mm. was great. Uh, and and it was it was, uh, it was was a really good way for me to, to kind of finish my playing career. And, uh, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of got my love back for the game and uh, coming out there. And, and there's a team that was a serious team as well at the time because you had some heavy hitters in that squad, with <laughs> yeah. you, didn't you? You had Drogba and Sean Wright Phillips and a lot of domestic talent as well. But So it wasn't a team that was taken lightly. It was a team that was showing up and, and coming to win championships. Yeah, well, that was one of the other reasons for coming out because, you know, Frank mentioned that uh, they were looking to bring a couple of experienced players in. Um, Again, Didier wasn't even on the, wasn't in the thought, but he said, you know, I'm bringing Jordan Stewart in, who I'd known and playing with for years, and he, he was a kind of similar character to me. wasn't going to come for a, the retirement, was coming to win. Um, knew Sean, same, you know, Sean was a little bit older than uh, than me, but still at that age wanted to win. Um, then we had the likes of Eric Avila, uh, Blair himself, you know, ex MLS. We had players in caliber who had been at the top level, Carl Wazinski. You know, being at MLS clubs. So I knew I wasn't coming or we weren't going to... And these players were, you know, kind of reaching the, the kind of the the latter stages of their career. But, you know, we wanted to win. We all came together and we, you know, Frank, uh, the experience that he's shown as well and, and put together a side that, okay, maybe didn't weren't the most talented, but was damn hard working. Uh, and we all wanted to win it. We all wanted to do things right on a daily basis and, um, then you had the sprinkling of like you know like the younger kids who were coming through from from colleges who were you know we were trying to help to give them a, the kind of careers that we'd had. It was um, it was a great blend and a great mix. And then you know the big man walks in and that just adds some extra spice to the equation. I found it interesting, and I'd met a couple of the guys out just in town, and <clears throat> I chatted to Sean Wright Phillips about this. Is that they can go into a town like Phoenix and not many people would know who these are. They're professional footballers, big name footballers. And you're walking into a town like Phoenix and you could probably pretty much have a relatively normal life compared to somewhere, maybe even like Los Angeles or New York, where 
Phoenix has got great football culture, but it's growing, right? But New York or LA, you probably aren't recognized. So I'm sure the boys probably just enjoyed being able to have a semi-normal life, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Sean's had an unbelievable career. I mean, Big time, it yeah. was a career that, you know, I was envious of, but, you know, he'd go out in Old Town and he, he was just Sean Wright Phillips. Yeah. It wasn't Sean Wright Phillips, the footballer, you know, even for myself, I, nobody was really going to know me, but you could, you could be that normal person um, which for me, I hadn't had. I've never had that. You know, wherever I'd been, somebody would recognise you. You know, whether you'd be in a supermarket or on a night out. So for us, it was brilliant. We could just go and we can. Yes, we had the serious side of things, and we'd done everything right, but we could actually go and enjoy kind of the social side of, of Phoenix, which you know we did more more often than not. But if we did, you know, we did it at the right times. But being able to do it at the right times and and let our hair down allowed us to be able to um, be as competitive on the pitch. And now you're back into the youth side of things, the, the under-23s at Newcastle. You mentioned in Phoenix you were working more recently on the coaching side as well. What was the, what's the contrast in the development of uh, players in the U.S. that you saw and the way that the coaching was uh, unfolding and the game growing here compared to where you're at now in Newcastle? Um, I mean, it's a... Obviously, Cookie had done an unbelievable job to get the you know the MLS Academy status, which um, seeing firsthand on a day to day basis how hard he worked, mm-hmm. um, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, I've got a friend who's at uh, FC Arizona, Dave Rogers, is doing a similar sort of thing. He's doing an unbelievable job there and bringing in, uh, making it kind of more structured to to a European style academy where you know you're having uh, weekly sessions or nightly sessions with some of the uh, some of the age groups. It's going towards that kind of elite academy status. Um, and that was what I was really enticed uh, and one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved because, you know, my passion coaching-wise, I don't know where it's going to take me, but I've got a real passion for, for, youth, for the youth side of things. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to was to try and, you know, bring players through from, from the Phoenix and the Arizona uh, area and, and give them an opportunity to go and play. You know, we had Bryce Duke come and train with us, uh, Caden Clark, who obviously Bryce is at LAFC and Caden's up in New York, mm-hmm. and they've had tastes of MLS experience. And we wanted to give more kids like that uh, an opportunity to be able to hopefully play for Phoenix Rising, yeah. um, but if not, be able to go to college and then into the professional route. And, you know, having the, uh, the knowledge that I do um, in that side of things and, and the coaching, even though I'm still young, my coaching experience, it's... You know, I know Phoenix have got a lot of kind of UK-based coaches who have worked in a lot of academies all over the, the country here. And uh, it was really good for me to be able to, to move into that or move uh, in like a hybrid role and, and work towards that side as well as obviously working with the first team. Yeah, and is that something that's always been in the back of your mind as a player? Because I think a lot of players finish and maybe don't have a pathway into what they do next because it's an odd career, right? You finish quite young, right? You're 30-ish. If you're a lucky footballer, you get to 30s and a lot of players sort of like, well, what do I do now? And it's coaching or management if you're a player that's got the opportunity to go and do the TV or the, the punditry work. But has that always been in the back of your mind? Is that a pathway to coach and then maybe a manager one day? Yeah, um, I mean, my dad got annoyed with it. Well, I wasn't annoyed, but uh, I could I could start collecting. I'm 37, but I could I can collect my pension now. My pension <laughs> kicked in when I was 35. My dad has to wait at least 65 or 68 or something <laughs> like that. He been working 30, 40 years, and, uh, and now we're gonna still not even. And, and you got to and you got to play football and do something. I got to play football and do what I want to do. He had to work behind the desk nine or five for 40 odd years, but no, I mean it was something I had earmarked early in my career and that I wanted to do. 
I started my badges when I was uh, when I was 24, um, when I was at QPR. Uh, sorry, 26 when I was at QPR. I tore my cruciate and was, I knew I was going to face kind of six to nine months out. Um, so I needed something to keep my mind focused. So I started my badges then. Uh, and then I got a bug for it straight away. I only started just because I, it was something to do. Mm. Um, but as soon as I started it, you know, having to, to learn how to put on a session and working on, you know, styles of play and philosophies and periodizations and all this, you know, the, the football and talk that we, we use now, I, I kind of, I got the bug for it. Um, so, yeah, even when I came out to Phoenix, before I came out, uh, or in between sort of 2016 and 2017, when I was still kind of playing, uh, before I came back for pre-season, I was in at Newcastle. Peter Beardsley was the under-23s manager at the time with Ben Dawson, who's now the head of coaching here at Newcastle. And uh, whilst I was training and keeping fit before going out, um, I was doing a bit of coaching with Pete and Ben, and, and it was brilliant, and I loved it. Um, and it reaffirmed that it's what I wanted to do when I finished. You know, I was hoping to play for as long as I possibly could, but having my badges, you know, I got my A license when I was when I was 29. Um, uh, so I knew that I could step straight into a job whenever I, uh, whenever I did decide to retire. I knew that I had them badges there that was going to allow me to kind of crack on straight away and not spend two years trying to, uh, to catch up and, and get them. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And now just from the coaching side, football is ever evolving, right? It's ever changing. What's that been like just from a playing style when you played and how football was then and now how it is now what's that evolution like and what, what do you think are some of the biggest changes just from you as a coach now looking at younger players compared to when you were coming through um whew. the biggest one um and it's more from like a, a cultural and i suppose a sign of the times is that the football and world back then was a lot harsher than it is now mm-hmm. um players i I have my own opinion on it, um, right or wrong, but I think players are kind of handed it a lot too soon before they're real, really ready. Um, not only to be footballers, to be but to be men. Are you um, saying that an eighteen-year-old shouldn't be driving a Ferrari around? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm dri- I've got a little smart car, an R8, and it's one of the poorest cars in our car park. Even six, well, seventeen-eighteen-year-olds <laughs> are driving around in Mercedes and BMWs and Audis and. So that's you know, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, when I was 17, we're talking about me and Hoggy were talking about it today. I had a I had a Corsa that I shared with my mum, and uh, if my mum needed it, I had to get the bus and the train in the training. But you know, it's I don't begrudge them for getting what they are getting, but I just mm-hmm. think sometimes it doesn't prepare them for for the real world and for the real world in, in both uh, football in terms and a life term. Um, is it 0.001% of actually players that come through or walk through the door at 16 are actually, like I said, 0.001% of the ones that are actually still playing at 30, 32 or 33 when I last seen this stat. So yeah. are we preparing them correctly? I don't know. That's, I think, the biggest change from then to now is that when I was coming through with Al Nervine, who's now the assistant uh, to David Moyes at West Ham, he, he, was, he was an educator in life as well as football. He was preparing us for failure. Mm. as a footballer but to be successful in life um, but then again the facilities that kids have nowadays compared to what we have back then you, there should be no excuse for them not to become footballers because they do have everything uh, there to become it's now just your own self-motivation to be to become footballers and and take on board everything that you've got uh, to try and become that next superstar 
I can't remember who I heard, which coach I heard mention it, but they used the word uh, empathy. And that was a big word that just because we may see a younger player as spoiled or because they didn't have to go through uh, like the rough and tough uh, sort of initiation phase of going into a team that we should look at them and be like, oh, they're spoiled brats and they don't have to work for anything. Every, or look at the pitch and look at the boots. And But without, if you have empathy, you can understand they still have struggles of their own, right? They're just modern struggles or different struggles. 100%. And I think the um, that... When I, again, growing up, we didn't have social media, you know, and we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have Twitter, Facebook was just coming onto the scene. So now you're seeing people, or young, some of our young kids have got thousands and thousands of followers. So there's pressure on them before they're even, you know, mm-hmm. cope with things like that. And, you know, we're seeing obviously stuff getting written online and things like that. And it's hard and it's, it's, it's hard for sometimes players not to be able to look at that and try and believe in their own hype, but then, you know, not be able to, to take away the, the negativity from, from social media too. We literally, if you, the most negative stuff that we got was from the coaches. Um, right. <laughs> nowadays, you've got, you've got thousands and thousands of coaches telling you how good you are or how bad you are. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes players aren't ready for, uh, for that side of the footballing world too. But the ones that you do find um, that are hardened, somewhat a little bit like the old school, um, are able to handle that, are the ones that kind of come through uh, and do go on to have careers. And what's that like now, just from Newcastle specifically? Uh, the clubs have to walk this fine line between um, transfer players and recruiting players from outside, uh, maybe just of Newcastle, but outside the country as well. So what is the the philosophy and the emphasis like at Newcastle now for bringing through local youth talent uh, versus going outside and spending money on a big sign-in? Or what, what's, what's kind of the philosophy there? Uh, we try and promote, promote and bring through our own. Um, mm. You know, we still kind of want us, uh, to fulfill that dream that Sir John Hall had all those years ago of fielding a team of, uh, at Levin Geordies. Um, but we do realise that that's probably an impossible dream. We're always going to strive to get there. Uh, mm. You've always got a dream. But, you know, you have to do the, the recruitment. Um, myself personally don't really get involved in the recruitment. We have our own kind of department who, you know, work tirelessly to try and bring in the players that, that fit the game model that we have here in the academy and and at the first team level. Um, but a lot of, like myself, when I do kind of my homework on the player, it's more due diligence on what they like as a character, mm. what they like as a person. You know, you're scouring their social media, what they like uh, on social media. You know, are they the ones that are always posting about themselves or um, what, they, what do they do? You kind of find little nuggets of information about a character off the field as well as on the field. So it's trying to see what kind of person they're going to come, they're going to, it's going to come through our door, and how do we have to work as a coach? Because not every every player is different. Every player's got a different mindset. Every player's got a different motivation. You know, is one player from, is he motivated to be the best? Is he motivated to earn as much as he possibly can? Now, there's no right or wrong in what I just said. You know, some you have to try and find as a coach uh, the way to motivate that person um, to be able to get the best out of them from an individual point of view, but also to try and get the best out of them to make the team better too. 
and that's got to be really hard for, as, as a coach, especially of young men, is that the men, young men are constantly changing, right? You're so different from 18 to 20 to 20 to 22. And some people do benefit from getting a bollock in and, you know, the, the hairdryer treatment yeah. and some need an arm around them, right? And some like trying to find out, you almost need a, a degree in psychology versus a football coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do, you do. But I mean, again, we have, um, we have a support uh, support network and, and the staff that's able to, to handle that situation as well to help us handle that situation I should say you know we need to be kind of Jekyll and Hyde um, yeah. you know we, we need to be able to uh, to go from being like an incredible hook to being like an incredible teddy bear um, <laughs> but, but again it, it's to what you said you have to you have to have that and, and again you used the word before you have to have a lot of empathy too because you know some of these young players that not only in the area, come from the area, <coughs> excuse me, but come from outside the area, they're young men. Right. You know, I, I'm speaking from experience as well. I mean, I, I moved from Newcastle to London when I was 24 and for six months to a year, I really struggled uh, to acclimatise to living on my own, having to cook for myself, having to wash my own clothes, having to, you know, go to the shops, having to sort out electricity, sky bill. You have to learn to, to I at 24 really struggled. So, you know, we have, kids that are coming over, they're 18 year old, they don't speak a word of English or their English isn't great and you have mm. to help them. And, and we have a fantastic um, fantastic group of people in the academy that are able to, to answer any question that's, that's asked of, of us that, um, that we can you know, give them the answers to hopefully, you know, when it comes to them putting the boots on and going on the field that you know, they're mentally ready to, to train because they've got no issues going on off the field. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Would you say you're the good cop or bad cop? You need to be both sometimes. You need to be both. You need to have both in the locker. I'm uh, the assistant, to be fair. Hoggy's more bad cop and I'm the good cop. Um, you know, Hoggy will, uh, Chris will fly off the handles every now and then and I'll be like, oh, don't listen to him, man. He's just talking about <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll. But then, the, but this is the thing. Some players I, I know won't respond to that um, from Chris, but they'll respond to it from me and vice versa. Um, yeah, so uh, sometimes Chris will say to me, "I ain't gonna get through to him by talking sternly to him." You know, you got to go in. You got to go in with the the hairdryer treatment. So yeah. um, it's been able to to understand each and every individual, and like you said before, having to understand what you know what works for them. Again, sometimes it's a bollocking that works for me, and the you know the the kind of care and treatment from Hoggy, and, and vice versa. Some players, it's the hairdryer treatment from Hoggy, and you know the bollocking from me. No, totally, mate. So before we let you go, we've got a few uh, questions, quick fire questions, if that's okay, from uh, yeah, few different listeners. Uh, I'm assuming that most of these people are either Phoenix, former, uh, from your time at Ryzen, you know, they want they want a couple of questions answered, if that's all right. Yeah, of course, fire Not away. Not incriminating, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> all right, best best player you've played with? Uh, what, throughout my career? Yeah, throughout. Or at Phoenix. Yeah, um, so all, all time. Jeez, it's a good question. Did you play uh, did you play with Aspria at Newcastle? Were you no, there? Was weird. I was I was in the stands admiring the the you know the flicks and the tricks and things. I was a, I was a ball boy the game where he uh, when he scored the hat trick against Barcelona. Um, oh, class, man. He was and I was on the Oh, he was incredible. Um and harshly treated by you know, not so much in Newcastle, but um, some other sections of the, the football and world, everybody thought that Newcastle blew the league when, when they signed Espria, but nah. there was other issues that was going on at the time. It wasn't Tino that, that cost Newcastle the league. He, he was, was great that season. What, that season, he, 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 came, cause he came at Christmas, didn't he? 
Yeah, he came. He literally got off the plane where it was snowing. Just did he have the, the, the fur coat on? The fur coat. He went for his pre-match meal. They played Middlesbrough away. They had a, a pre-match meal. Apparently, the you know the the old tale is he had a he had a glass a glass of red, a glass of red wine with his uh, with his pre-match meal. All the boys were looking at him, thinking, "What the heck's this guy doing?" <laughs> Came on after an hour, turned a couple of Middlesbrough players inside out, and you know set up the winner for Les Ferdinand and for. Uh, I can't remember who got the other one. I think it was maybe an own goal. Um, but it was um, Tino was brilliant. Uh, it was he typified the um, the style that Keegan had in them years. He was the entertainer. Um, it's probably a bit of a sidetrack. But were you at Newcastle when Keegan was still the manager, or was that before your time? He was. I was in the youth teams. But okay. I, when he came back from his second stint um, as manager, uh, I was a player then. Uh, like I was actually one ish, oh two maybe. No, 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 that was um, oh three, oh three and oh four uh, when Keegan came back. Um, he was, uh, or maybe, maybe, yeah, it was oh three, oh four, something like that. Mm. Uh, but he was uh, no, sorry, it would have been later, oh four, oh five, oh five, oh six, so around about that time anyway. Mm. But um, he was, uh, he was brilliant with me. Um, when I was injured, I'd done my cruciate. Um, so I was coming back from injury, and uh, and him and Terry Mack would take. We would go into the indoor facility with. Uh, it would be me and Derek Wright, who was the head physio, um, KK and, and Terry Mack, and uh, you know it was a dream for me. I mean, I was I, like I said, I was a starry-eyed fan of oh, Keegan and the entertainer. So he was uh, he was incredible. But um, to go back to your question, the uh, the best player I played with, um, just the obvious one, Alan Shearer. Um, again, Jordy growing up, wearing the, I had the number nine on the back of my shirt with his name. So growing up watching him and then able to play with him was a dream come true. But there's two in particular that stand out um, for different reasons. One was Alberto Solano, yeah, who's now the Peru. Uh, Nobby was absolute magician. Um, yeah. One of the most technically gifted players I've ever come across. Uh, and when I was coming through, I was a centre-back coming through, but played, uh, you know, came through and played my first games in the first team as a right back and Nobby was in front of us and the help that he gave me both on and off the field to be able to perform was uh, it was it was brilliant um, and then the other guy was Mele Jednak who was an Australian centre midfield player I played with at Crystal Palace and um, he was an absolute monster in many in many ways how he uh, held himself on the field um, and how he prepared himself off the field was, was awe inspiring and um, I wish I'd met Mele earlier in my career, from pretty honest with you. I think I would have had a, uh, a better career if I'd met him earlier. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, what, what about your least favourite player to play against? Poor, good question. Centre-back, uh, you must have been el- elbowed in the mouth a few times. Yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> um, I, one of the toughest players I came across was, um, was Wayne Rooney. Um, I mean, he was just... He's probably, I mean... Obviously, he's just recently retired and he is probably one of England's greatest ever players. Yeah. Um, just purely because he was so intelligent. Um, everybody thinks about the goals and things like that, but the way that he managed to manufacture space, um, just in general play, uh, how he's able to get out of that. He wasn't really the, the most skillfulest of players, mm. but he was probably a yard ahead of everybody upstairs as well. I mean, he had the pace, but he didn't have the blistering pace of the likes of Thierry Henry. Uh, or Cristiano Ronaldo, but he had he had that way of being able to manufacture space to be able to get away from people, and uh, then his awareness to be when he was you know when he needed to get rid of the ball or when he needed to shoot or 
uh, and in and around the box, I mean, he was just uh, incredible. But I'd probably put him as, uh, as probably my toughest opponent. It's funny because most people probably wouldn't associate that word immediately with Rooney, his intelligence. They probably think like raw power and like that's interesting that you went to that. Because if you think about the way you play football, just it, it's that little bit of intelligence to find the extra five yards of space or, you know, not having to make a certain run because you're already in the right position. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, find it interesting that word used. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't have to move to find space. And he mm. had that ability sometimes just to stand still. As the ball is moving, every the teams that normally or generally the defenders are moving, but he mm. would sometimes just stand still. But the awareness to be able to stand still or to be able to move half a yard, mm. you know, he just he had that ability in particular playing kind of like a. He played more as a nine and a half than a, than, than an orthodox number nine. I know towards the end of his career he moved kind of back as like a number ten, and then you know into midfield when he was playing at Everton. But he he he'd done all them roles effortlessly, uh, effortlessly, and mm. his intelligence to be able to. To play each role at uh, the highest of, uh, of levels was, um, you know, was one of the reasons why he probably is one of the greatest players to put on an England shirt. There's all these different side questions popping up, mate, and we'll uh, we'll get through this quickly, I promise. But no, what do you I've think about like you just just on Rooney now getting the derby job, right? And what do you think about this now for some of these players that have got big profiles, they played at the highest level, done it all, like Lampard. Um, you've got Arteta's gone in at Arsenal, and obviously he's coached for quite a long time under Pep. But what do you think about that as players getting these? pretty big jobs like Derby's a big job in the championship right without any real coaching background or experience or managerial experience at a lower level you used to have to sort of like prove your worth right at a lower level and now managers are going in at you know Gerard at Rangers and like they're getting massive jobs just right out of the traps yeah but I think it's uh, they've obviously shown something to uh, the guys who are appointing them that they're able to handle the job mm. I mean the pressures of being a manager uh, is incredible. Uh, I mean, I, I'm privy to it kind of on a on a minor level with the Phoenix, with working with obviously with Rick. Mm. Um, I can't I can I can't even understand uh, grasp the magnitude of if you know being a Premier League or a Championship manager, the pressure that's involved in that. But you got to remember, these guys were at the peak of their careers as as players for a hell of a long time, so they've shown that they can handle the pressure. Now it's been able to, you know, there's been handle that pressure and in, in, in control of yourself on the field, but then handle that pressure and control of, of 11 guys is, is a different pressure in itself. But Frank Lampard was, you know, I showed that he had a, um, a good backroom staff. Jordy Morris, you know, I'd been coaching through the youths at Chelsea and, uh, and had an unbelievable coaching background. So I think what's key to even the likes of Gerard and, and Arteta, they're appointing people that are in and around them that are able to be able to take or understand maybe some things that they don't know about the management. They have people that, you know, Arteta at Arsenal has got um, Steve Round, who I worked with, who was at Newcastle when I was there. Mm. You know, Frank Lampard, like I said, has got... Um, it's got Jordy Morris, Frank Lampard's, uh, sorry, uh, Stephen Gerrard's got Gary McAllister. Um, so, so you're just you're building a team out around like Solskjaer. You're building exactly, yeah, exactly. Solskjaer's got um, Carrick, Fletcher, um, Carrick. Well, not so much Carrick, but McKenna. Uh, yeah, he brought McKenna. up Mike Phelan. Uh, he brought up Mike Phelan. So it's. I think it's key that you have that these young and experienced managers mm. have the experience around them who are able to, you know, understand what it is that takes to become a manager or how to support a manager in, uh, in these kind of pressure cooker situations, you know. And I think it's, um, I think Wayne Rooney will be a, an incredible manager because I think he's, he's intelligent. 
you know, everybody laughs and jokes and takes the mick out of him. But, you know, he's shown on the pitch that he's, uh, he was a hell of a player and I'm sure he's going to transfer that onto the, onto the touchline. Yeah, interesting. All right, mate. Look, last one and then we'll let you go. All right. So, favorite favorite Phoenix moment. It can be off the pitch. It can be on the pitch. Whatever it might be. Favorite Phoenix moment. Oh, um, do you know? I've got kind of two moments. Um, the uh, winning the Western Conference uh, at Orange County. Um, you know, Didier scoring the. Uh, the winner, uh, and then the night after celebrating because you know we obviously went to Orange County with I think it was about three and a half thousand Phoenix fans. Yeah. Uh, they made the place look sound like home, but you know we weren't really fancied that night. Orange County were probably the favourites, and quite rightly so. Yeah, they would have been the better team over the course of the season compared to us, but we won that, uh, and it was an unbelievable, um, unbelievable night. You know, Chris scoring early doors settled it a lot of nerves that we had. And then obviously Didier uh, scoring to make a two-nil, and then holding on at the end to to win that was um, was incredible because there'd been a lot of hard work we put in throughout the course of that season. You know, I only came in halfway through it, but um, the foundations were were there from the start. So to actually finish with that, lifting that trophy was uh, was incredible. But then the second one was um, probably well, it kind of kind of links, but going to Tulsa. Uh, and that incredible run that we had and breaking it. Kevon Lambert, I think, scoring. Um, what, what was that know, unbeaten that was, run? Was that 20 games? 15? 20 games, yeah. but the one that, you know, that was Kev, I think, scored to make it 11, uh, which was the, I think, 10 was Cincinnati's record mm. of the season before. So to break theirs um, was great because it's, you know, obviously it's always great to have records, but, you know, Kev to score and, uh, and break that because obviously the pressure was starting to toll as you were getting a six, you were getting a seven, you were getting an eight. Everybody's talking, oh, can they beat Cincinnati's? No, they're never going to beat Cincinnati's. And then to do it there, you know, Tulsa, which is a, is a really hard place to go, um, was was incredible. But then the uh, the New Mexico and we drew uh, and we'd finally realised that we, again, we'd broken a record of of Cincinnati's that have points total that we we're going to be the best in the in the West, but not only best in the West, but the best over both conferences at breaking that 77 point record and, and getting to 78 was, um, you know, they were, I know you only asked for one, but the kind of, it's hard to pick one from, from them. So M3 was, um, was hard to pick between, but they were the three that stand out more than that, anything else. That's that's all right, mate. We'll have the three. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, classmate. Listen, we're going to let you go. Before we do, uh, social media. Are you using any Twitter or Instagram? Or yeah, anything? I've got. Uh, I'm on both. Peter Ramage eighty three on both of them. So Peter Ramage eighty three. Uh, cool. So anyone that wants yeah, to follow yeah. along. Yeah, that's it's been great, though, mate. It's been uh, really really no interesting, and hopefully we get you back out west eventually. Yeah, we've got we've got plans to uh, when lockdown. And we're allowed, finally allowed to fly and not quarantine and things like that. We do. Uh, we kind of left abruptly. Um, I got the job and it was just kind of pack up and fly home. So we want to. We want to come back out. We were. We love it. We love Phoenix. We miss it. We really do miss it. And that's me saying it when it when it's snowing just in the background, or not just because it's snowing in the background. I should say, but we miss <laughs> it because we met. You know, we made a lot, a lot of friends over there, and um, and yeah, we'd uh, we'll be we'll be regular visits over the course of time. No, that's great, mate. Yeah, brilliant. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a few pints for you when you get back as well. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Pete. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks very much, Adam. Yeah, cheers, cheers Adam. Take it easy.
All right, that's it, everyone. It's the end of today's show. I want to thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back on Tuesday with myself and Tom for the AHO Weekly Show. Until then, look after yourselves, and we will see you all again soon. Cheers.